Good morning. Would you open your Bibles with me to John chapter 4? John chapter 4, and you can also find our sermon text on page 889 of the Pew Bible in front of you. John chapter 4. We'll start reading in verse 43. You can remain seated for the reading of God's Word today for the sake of time. So beginning in verse 43 of John chapter 4, hear the word of the Lord. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Cana to Galilee. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm grateful for this opportunity to come and sit around your word together as one body in Christ. I pray that you would Grant us ears to hear and eyes to see what is here. That we may leave treasuring Jesus Christ above all things. Even those things which are most precious to us. Do a good work on this day in our souls. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we find Jesus on his way to Galilee after spending two days in Sychar with the people of Samaria. This was his intention back in verse 3 where we see that he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. His intention was to leave Judea, travel and travel to Galilee, but not apart from seeking true worshipers among those in Samaria First, just as his heavenly father wanted him to. So he travels to Galilee, not taking the main highway, but a back road through Samaria to gather to himself an adulterous woman and many in her village. 
He gathers them all for eternal life. All kind of revival was breaking out among the Samaritans as they listened to Jesus' words. They didn't want to be with Jesus simply because of what the woman said. They actually were hearing Jesus' words for themselves and believing that this indeed is the Savior of the world. This is Israel's Messiah. This is God's promised deliverer for Israel and more than that, Savior of the world. So there's a spiritual awakening among the Samaritans. And then here in verse 43, we find Jesus again departing for Galilee. Does that strike you as odd? Counter-cultural? To all the church planting strategies? Why not set up shop for a revival in Sychar? for a revival ministry among the Samaritans. They just experienced a two-day crusade, and now he's leaving. He's departing for Galilee. And on top of that, John tells us in verse 44 that the reason he's going to Galilee, what's compelling Jesus to go, is that Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So first he leaves a successful two-day ministry, and then he goes to a place where he knows he'll have no honor. Why return to the wrong side of the tracks if you know your own people will show you no honor? Why go back to your Jewish turf if there's greener grass in Samaria? What are you doing, Jesus? This is not a comfortable ministry lifestyle. You might be thinking, now wait a minute though. It says in verse 45 that when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. So it doesn't appear that it was all that bad for Jesus to return to his own people. The opposition doesn't look that great. However, we must remember to read their welcome of Jesus. We must remember to read their welcome in light of what John says before it and in light of what John says After it. Before it, John says that Jesus was testifying that a prophet has no honor in his hometown, which means that we shouldn't be quick to conclude that this is a true welcome of the person of Jesus himself, at least in the way that Jesus should be welcomed. What comes after the welcome exposes its true nature. The text says that the Galileans welcomed him. Why did they welcome him? Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. Turn back with me to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 23. Where John first mentions all that Jesus has done at this feast. Because what we're seeing here in chapter 4 in the hearts of these Galileans is the same thing we see there in chapter 2. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, same feast that he mentions in chapter 4, many believed in his name. And then here's the qualification. When they saw the signs he was doing. And then this is Jesus' response to the kind of belief that only comes to Jesus for signs 
but not for who he truly is as God's son. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. He, knew, he did not entrust himself to these people for their belief because they were not coming to him for who he truly is as God's son. Welcoming Jesus into your hometown as the doer of signs is not the same thing as welcoming him as savior of the world like we saw the Samaritans doing. The people in Galilee welcomed Jesus all right, but John is using irony to help us see that their welcome is superficial. They welcome him as a hometown hero. Miracles make them look good. His miracles give us bragging rights. Come on into town, Jesus. But they do not welcome him as Messiah, Savior, or Lord. This is why Jesus testifies that he had no honor in his hometown. You do not honor Jesus if you just want Jesus to do things for you quite apart from having Jesus. Jesus is not honored when he's merely used for his miracles. Jesus is honored when he's received and embraced for eternal life. When he's embraced as Savior of the world, the one who takes away my sins and makes me a child of God. When God saves sinners, he always saves them, he always saves them on conditions which honor his Son. Always. On conditions that are in line with his son's greatness. On conditions that recognize who his son truly is. In other words, it doesn't stop at the miracle. It looks through the miracle to see the son of God as glorious. God is pleased when a Samaritan woman finally sees her need for living water and embraces Jesus for true spiritual life because that shows nobody else like Jesus. Nobody else satisfies the soul truly like Jesus. God is pleased when many people in the village of Sychar say, this indeed is Savior of the world because that displays nobody can save from the wrath to come like Jesus can save. God loves it when sinners welcome Jesus, not as superficial sign seekers, but as desperate for salvation, because this is what truly honors His Son. That's not how the Galileans welcome Him. Their welcome does not honor Jesus as Son of God and Savior of the world, but as sign-doer. That's all they're really interested in. They refuse to look through the signs to see His true glory as the only Son of God sent by the Father. And yet Jesus still departs for Galilee. What's going on here in Jesus' counter-cultural approach to ministry? The answer is that Jesus is on a mission. Jesus is on a mission given by His Father... 
but constantly characterized by opposition from his own people. We saw it in chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, where John initially lays out, this is what my gospel is about, this is what Jesus Christ is about, this is the mission given, from him, from, given to him from his Father. Chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, true, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Mission of the Son from the Father. He was coming into the world, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, like the people in Galilee. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Mission from the Father, opposition from his own people. Jesus is on a mission. This is part of his mission. You don't come as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world without facing a slaughter. You don't come as a suffering servant without being despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus faces the opposition. He ministers in the face of dishonor in Galilee because Jesus is on a mission to save you when he dies on a cross at the hands of his own people. This is what the apostles preach throughout the New Testament. Men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Despite the signs, despite the miracles, his own people, the Jews, do not honor Jesus to the degree that they eventually crucify him. Jesus knows what their inner disposition is toward him. He sees through their welcome of him into town. That will eventually cost him his life and he still goes to Galilee. So as you're reading this gospel, what you're watching take place is a Savior who is never derailed from accomplishing His mission to die for your sins. He's not even swayed by the good things happening in Samaria. He is resolved to finish His Father's mission even to the point of death on a cross, so that you and I will be saved. Jesus departs for Galilee because he's on a mission. Here's why that's so important for understanding his next miracle. Jesus' miracles, if they're to be rightly understood, Jesus' miracles are inseparable from his mission. Jesus never wants people to marvel at his miracles and miss his mission. If you marvel at his miracles and miss his mission, you miss Jesus altogether. That is why every other religion sees Jesus as merely a prophet or a miracle worker. They do not understand why he came. If 
If you marvel at his miracles and miss his mission, you miss Jesus altogether. He didn't come merely to amaze you with his ability to work wonders. He came to save you from your sins and give you life in himself. That's what helps us understand the account with the official. That's, that's even what Jesus helps the official understand in the next part of our passage And what we, too, must understand if we are to come to Jesus in a saving and honoring way. Verse 46. So Jesus came again to to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. So John is cluing us into something. He's reminding us of Jesus' first sign in Galilee. The problem there was that the people ran out of wine at a wedding party, and then Jesus then... Jesus then uses the occasion to reveal his glory by providing an abundance of good wine that signified the inbreaking of God's kingdom through his mission. And here we have another problem, a new one. There was an official whose son was ill, it says. Very ill, verse 47 indicates. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him And asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And just like Jesus did at the wedding party, Jesus uses the occasion to reveal his glory and point others to himself. So he gives another one of those soul-searching responses right here. In verse 48, Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Can you imagine the anguish that is in this man? His son is on the brink of death. He's desperate for a healer, and all he figures is this miracle worker Jesus has the potential to make my son well. Jesus, come down and heal my son. Answer, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What is Jesus doing? One thing that clues us into what he's doing is that the you, the word you there, pronoun, is plural. It's in the plural. When he says, unless you, so he's talking to the man, but unless you all, all you people, see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus has in mind more people than just this official. This official actually illustrates a much bigger problem among all those in Galilee. They're interested in Jesus to the extent that he can perform miracles, to the extent that he can give them what they want. Whether that's more wine at a wedding party or a healthy son. But they're not interested in Jesus to save them. They're not interested in an abiding relationship with Jesus. So Jesus challenges the official. Is this how you're coming to me? Simply for a healthy son? Or do you want more of me than that? In doing so, he's simultaneously pressing everyone else to consider the same question, including us. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. In other words, who do you really think I am? What is it about me, official, that you really want? Jesus wants nobody misunderstanding his mission and who he really is, even when it means putting himself between you 
and your dying child. Right? This is where we are. Jesus is coming in, and we're, we're constantly doing this, and Jesus is moving in step front, saying, look here, look here, look here. Even in heart-rending circumstances like this one, Jesus will not be misunderstood. And folks, this is loving. This is love. This is a labor of love. Jesus wants to give this man more than a healthy child. He wants to give him himself. What good would a healed son be if the father and his son were both left with each other but without Christ? 40, 50, 60 more years of happiness, playgrounds, school, graduation, weddings, new jobs, a family, and then zero minus 10 billion suffering eternal punishment in hell. Jesus wants to give this man more than health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. All of which is fleeting with the present age. He wants to give him eternal life in himself. And the same is true in how Jesus relates to you. Think of all your distressing situations, the sickness that have plagued your children, the dearest of family members you've lost, the assault you've experienced in the past, the demons who tempt you with the darkest of lies, the mass confusion of life that paralyzes your zeal. And you're coming to this man, you're coming to Jesus like this man, saying, take it all away, Jesus. Give me a sign, Jesus. Answer me, Jesus. And then he pulls out, A, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Why? Not because he's callous to your wants. Not because he's unloving. But because he can take, he can take all of those things away. He can give you a sign. He can provide you with answers. But if you have all those things and lack a relationship with him, you have nothing. Jesus Christ is more than a child healed. He is the gift of eternal life itself for you and your sick child. And He will stand between you and everyone, everything else in this world you're running to for life in order for you to have Him. Whether in times of toe-tapping joy or in times of gut-wrenching pain, Jesus always moves us beyond our self-interests, even when they're dear to you, so that we might experience true life in Him. That's what He wants the man to get. I'm not just a miracle worker who came from Judea to Galilee to give your little boy temporary life. I am the Son of God who came from heaven to earth to give the world eternal life. That's who I am. I came to give you, people like you and your son, eternal life. Now, to be clear, it's not that the miraculous healing would be bad. 
He plans to heal the boy here. But the miraculous healing can be interpreted apart from Christ's own identity and interpreted apart from his own mission to save. And that Jesus does not want to happen. So he loves the official and the others by challenging him. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him in verse 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. The man accepts the challenge. Come down before my child dies. And Jesus again doesn't answer in a way that you'd expect. He doesn't take the 14-mile hike to Capernaum to lay hands on the man's son. He simply says, go, your son will live. Can you imagine the test of this man's soul? Twice he's asked Jesus to come down to rescue his son, and twice Jesus answers in a way that tests the true nature of the man's faith. Test one, are you coming to me for all the right reasons? Miracle worker, is that what you want, or do you want me? Test two, are you going to believe my word? This man is 14 miles away from home. Do you know what consumes you when you're walking on a dirt road for 14 miles and your son is at home near death? Your son. Getting back your son, that's what consumes you on the trip. It's now well after lunchtime. He won't make it back home before the evening falls. He's desperate for Jesus to come with him. And Jesus essentially tells him, go back home. Your son will live. Talk about crushing. Talk about crushing if all you're focused on is your son. Can you imagine the competing voices of your flesh and the world and the devil against Jesus' word at this point? Some of you know them well. Your own flesh grows cynical. Go. 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 Your son will live. I, I, ask, come, I ask for you to come down. Thanks for not caring, Jesus. Or maybe you're more often despondent. This is a hopeless situation. Why did I even bother approaching Jesus? Maybe you respond to your felt needs. Jesus, what I need right now is not another deepening of my faith in you. What I really need right now is a better son. You give me him, we'll work on the other later. Thank you very much. Or maybe the world is feeding you hope in other things. Drink it off on the way home. It's going to die anyway. Just pull yourself together and be strong. Just devote yourself to positive thinking on your trip back to Capernaum. Or maybe the powers of darkness tempt you with the ancient lie of, did God really say? Do you really believe that Jesus has your best interest in mind by not going with you? Verse 50 tells us that the man has begun to see something more of this Jesus, which drowns out the other voices competing for his soul. 
John tells us the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He believed Jesus' word. And the evidence of his belief is that he acted upon it. He returned home. True faith will always believe Jesus' word because true faith will always see that Jesus' word is not merely trustworthy. Jesus' word also gives life to the dead. That's what happens when you're God's son. You have life in yourself. In him was life, John says in chapter 1. Verse 4. What does he say in chapter 5? Turn with me over to chapter 5. Real quick. To verse 24. Look at the kind of life that Jesus' word gives. Chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. His word gives spiritual life. Keep reading with me. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, Jesus' word, and come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All of that is taking place because of Jesus' word. It has power to give spiritual life. It has power to raise the dead Physically. When you're God's only son, you have life in yourself. Your word is a creating word. Your word is a powerful, universe-sustaining kind of word. And so your word is able to give life to the dead. That includes physical life and spiritual life. Notice that that Jesus' word to the official does more... It does more than simply heal the boy from a distance, giving him physical life again. Jesus' word also brings spiritual life to the official and his entire household. Verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour that Jesus said to him. Back at Jesus' word here. The father knew that this is the hour when Jesus said to him, Your son will live. And the result, he himself believed, and all his household. So no longer is it just the man showing a single act of faith in Jesus' life-giving word, go, your son will live. Not only that, but now his entire household enters a life of belief because of Jesus' life-giving word. 
The official and his household become a believing type of people. The official finally connects Jesus' miracle with Jesus' mission. The the official finally looked through Jesus' miracle of giving his son physical life to see Jesus' mission of giving the world eternal life. And he believed. He and all his household believed. That's the greatest miracle of this story. Not merely that Jesus' word caused the boy's health to be restored, but that Jesus' word caused the boy's entire family to be reborn. That is the greatest miracle of this story. The official could have missed it altogether and kept coming to Jesus as a sign seeker. Thank you very much for healing my son. I'll go home now and have nothing more to do with you. But he doesn't. He listens to Jesus' words, all of them. Jesus' words have compelled him into genuine saving faith, a faith that actually honors the Son. The official had come to see a miracle performed on his son, but he returned, possessing infinitely more than a healthy son. He now possessed eternal life and belonged to the Savior of the world. Far greater was it that he has Jesus than all the health of a son. There are a couple of applications I'd like to close with. And the first is this. If Jesus' word is so powerful, if his word is able to give life to our souls, then why is it that we find ourselves in seasons of ignoring it? We can consider this at an individual level, my relationship with the Lord, and at a corporate level, my relationship with the saints. Why is it that we find ourselves in seasons of neglecting Jesus' word if it's Jesus' word that gives life? And I don't just mean the red letters. I mean the whole Bible. Consider this. This is just, these are just a few examples from the Gospel of John about Jesus' word. Jesus' word reveals the person of God. Chapter 3, verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God for he gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus' word exposes the truth about all things. Chapter 3, verse 33. Whoever receives Jesus' testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Jesus' word creates faith. Chapter 4, verse 41 to 42. Many more Samaritans believed, that's faith, believed, because of Jesus' word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard, what they hear, Jesus' word, we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus' word Heals. Go. Your son will live. Later he's going to call Lazarus out of the tomb. Jesus' word reveals heavenly things. 
about the kingdom. Chapter 3, verses 11 to 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we've seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus' word stimulates joy. What does, John, what does John the Baptist do? Tell us in chapter 3, verse 29, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Jesus' word creates joy. Jesus' word gives life to dead people. Chapter 5, verse 24, we already saw that. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment. He passes from death to life. Jesus' word nourishes us with spiritual life. Chapter 6, verses 66 to 68. Many of his disciples leave. They turn their backs on Jesus. They don't want anything. I don't want any more to do with this guy. So Jesus turns to his 12 disciples and says, do you want to go with him as well? And what do they say? Simon says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus' word leads us into the care of our good shepherd. Chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. If Jesus' word has such life giving, life-sustaining, faith-creating power, then why should we ever neglect it? Let us be all the more diligent not to give in to the competing voices of of this present darkness, but to trust the words of the one who's overcome this present darkness. Let us be all the more diligent to heed the Apostle Paul's words when he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Don't let the many opportunities we have simply pass by without saturating each other with Jesus' life-giving word. Press each other into his word daily that more and more we might find life in Jesus himself instead of looking for it merely in his gifts. And the second point of application is this. May we love Jesus himself more than simply what Jesus does for us. It's a very good thing and it's a very biblical thing to ask Jesus to do for us what we cannot do on our own. Jesus, strengthen my parenting. Jesus, meet my financial needs. Jesus, write a sermon this week. Jesus, give us wisdom. Jesus, provide a job. Jesus, heal the sick. And he desires to answer our requests, the scripture teaches us, so that thanksgiving might abound to God through him. But he is, he is ultimately concerned that we see him as the ultimate gift of the story. Not the gift of healing or whatever else. 
He is the ultimate gift in God's story. That's not to minimize the good things and the dearly loved people the Lord gives us to enjoy in this life, like our own children. It's simply to give us Jesus' perspective on what is truly satisfying and infinitely valuable, and that's Himself. He is the only glorious Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And everything exists through Him and for Him, as B. Jack mentioned a while ago in his testimony. He is infinite in holiness, superior in majesty, immeasurable in love, awesome in splendor, ultimate in power, unbounded in joy, and unflinching in His faithfulness to you. He is God's ultimate gift from heaven. He sent Him into the world not merely to perform miracles, but to accomplish a mission for your salvation and mine. Which includes not only the forgiveness of our sins, but the promise of eternal fellowship with an all-glorious God in His final kingdom where there will be no more sick boys 14 miles back home. When we have Him, we really do have everything. When we have Him... Not merely as sign-doer, but as Savior, as eternal life itself, everything else in life serves only to strengthen our faith in Him until Jesus finishes His Father's mission and we behold His His face by sight. Then we shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike us, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd. And he will guide us to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, this is a difficult word to receive. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe especially when our hearts are downcast or in great pain. But I pray that you would show us the glory of Christ and remind us of it every day that we arise, that no matter what we face in life, you will be treasured above all, that we would trust you with everything, and then finally to give us life on the last day when you raise us from the dead, that we may forever be with you and behold your glory in Christ by sight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.